Good evening. It's good to be back with you again. Today I get to preach, well, two sermons, but three times. So this is a big day for me. Really exciting. I'm enjoying it. I appreciate Chris sharing the pulpit. They have safely made it back, and so next week you get Chris back. But today you're stuck with me. Um, so much stuff right now at the Dozier house. Does anyone feel that? So much stuff. We spent the afternoon trying to find a place for the stuff. This time at the Dozier house is full. We have three kids whose birthdays fall in November and December, and then you add that to the Christmas holidays, and this time of year is both magical and expensive. So I realize, I realize that's our fault, um, but by the by the time it crosses your radar, it's a little bit too late. And then by the third child, your standards are kind of low and you've just given up. So, so here we are with all of our kids, birthdays and Christmas falling at the same time. You know, it's a really fun time of year for the kids. And that makes it a fun time of year for the parents. <coughs> Despite the mess and the... <coughs> Excuse me, the mess and the, and the chaos and the expense, there's nothing like watching a kid light up when they unwrap a gift that they've been looking forward to. In fact, there's really nothing like watching a grown-up light up when they unwrap a gift that is a surprise or meets a real need. I would guess most of us can relate to this feeling, even if it isn't something that happens often. You know, the, the feeling of joy and excitement when you open a gift that just hits the spot just right. Maybe it's something you've been wanting but you wouldn't buy for yourself because of cost or practicality. Maybe it's something you didn't even know that you want and you absolutely love it. This is the elusive experience that the gift giver people are trying to deliver each year. I'm not one of those, but my wife is pretty good at it. It's the gold standard to be achieved. Now, I feel like I have tried really hard not to want things. The truth is, I'm not very good at it, but I'm weird enough in the things that I want that I figured out how to still be really judgmental. So so let me explain what I mean so y'all can understand. If someone, one of you came up to me and said, oh, I just love shoes. This is not about you, Carolyn, okay? I know we've had this conversation, but it's not about you. If some hypothetical person came up to me and said, oh, how I just love shoes. They bring me so much joy. If you want to get me a gift that makes me feel special and excited, please let it be shoes. I would say that is really silly for you to get so much joy from something so meaningless like shoes. Isn't life more important than shoes? I wouldn't really say that. I I wouldn't say that. But I might think it, and, and that makes it way worse. Up until recently, I, I thought these thoughts, and I did my best to keep them to myself in the name of human decency, and I, I might let them slip out a little bit at home. And poor Brianna has been tasked with the, the charge of trying to show me this double standard that I hold, but I can't see it. And here's why. Because the things that give me joy are so much more noble than the things that give other people joy. (laughs) Y'all understand what I'm saying. I think some of y'all would feel this. The things that give me joy are important. I get my joy from two very meaningful things, books and tools. In fact, I have brought with me as a sermon prop 
all of the goodness that the world has to offer packaged into one ideal gift, a book about tools. I don't get my joy from silly things like clothing or electronics. Or for me, books are a justifiable thing because from books I can get knowledge and from knowledge I can be better at so many things. And for me, tools seem a justifiable thing because from tools I can create other things that are valuable and and save money. And that's what I tell Brianna when I want to buy tools. So, So a book about tools, it doesn't get much more pure than that. And to be honest, those statements have a strong element of truth to them. Books and tools can be very helpful and they can be beneficial. And I'm sure many of the things that give you joy can be helpful and beneficial as well. But am I really any more noble than Brianna when she gets pleasure from a handbag? When I get pleasure from books or tools? Or all of you and this shoe thing that you have going on? Am I, am I better than y'all? Because books and tools are still just things. And that's been a big thing for me to realize as I've been preparing for this sermon. They are, they are just things like the things that you find your joy in. Things. That was a very confusing sentence that I did not read correctly. When I step back and I honestly assess myself, I see this. I'll say it this way. I am not a person who gets... Uh, sorry, when, when I step back and honestly assess myself, I see this. Not just a person who gets pleasure from things, but a person who is a hypocrite and judges others for the same attitude. And that's a dangerous place for a heart to be. Why do we get such pleasure from things? Perhaps you've experienced what I'm talking about this holiday season. Perhaps you've experienced the pleasure that comes from holding something special that you've been wanting. Maybe it was a purse or shoes or a watch or a grill or a tech gadget or a phone. Maybe it was something better like a book or a chainsaw. We all have our different things and our justification for them is different, but the emotion and pull we feel towards them is very similar. These are the things that make us feel full of life when we think about them. Our heart flutters and we get excited and we see and envision all the awesome things that we're going to do with them and how our life's going to improve because of them. And there is likely some truth to your feelings. Books do give me knowledge and it does help me do my job better. Tools do let me create and fix things. They let us save money and they've built resilience. Electronics do some really cool things. They've made our life so much easier in so many ways. And I suppose that it is also beneficial to have a perch that matches your favorite shoes. Maybe I won't ever understand that, but the reality is this. We don't get excited about things that we think are lame. And we don't want things unless we see them as a great benefit. We feel emotions for things that have roots in some form of reality. But I must ask, are we letting our hearts go to a dangerous place? And I think we might be. This evening's sermon is not an attack on Christmas gift giving or getting, so please understand that. I like Christmas. This sermon is meant to call you to discern what is happening in your heart during a time when I think we all might be particularly vulnerable and susceptible towards drifting towards attitudes that we shouldn't have, towards desiring something that someone else has, 
This sermon is meant to call you to discern what's happening in your heart in a time when you might be susceptible to making the mistake of thinking that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, where Jesus reminds us that this is false. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In fact, let's read the entire passage. Let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A little bit of context is always helpful. We don't know exactly where they are at this moment in time, but we're in a portion of Luke where Jesus has begun a slow, meandering journey towards Jerusalem where he's going to die and be raised from the dead. And during this teaching moment, the crowds have swelled to the thousands. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 12, it tells us that people were being trampled, that there were so many people there to listen to the things that Jesus says. And I find it interesting that both before and after this teaching passage, Jesus seems to really be focusing on this immediate group around him, his disciples. But then during this little bit, he seems to to take his attention upward and outward and focus on the crowd. You know, there's some specific promises that he shares with his disciples before and after. The promises for God's care and provision. But here in the middle are some general truths. General truths upon which, which these other teachings are founded that apply to everyone in the crowd. Through this parable, he is teaching a powerful fundamental reality one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions furthermore through this parable he shows that this truth is self-evident because death the universal equalizer makes the futility of material things painfully obvious to desire what someone else has gains you nothing in the long term to live in abundance has no real lasting advantage so as a non-believer this parable is about death and stuff but as a believer this parable is about life and stuff so we're going to digest it a little bit together tonight we're going to walk through the parable together we're going to try to sort out what's going on and see if we can discern what jesus is trying to teach us i believe what he shares here needs to be heard frequently in this culture that we live in but especially this time of year lest we forget what life is really about I want to draw your attention to verse 16 first, to the statement he makes in this, at the very beginning of the parable. 
It says this, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. That's interesting that he would start, that he would use an agricultural example. I suppose that would have related to the crowds around him very much so. Um, And an example with agriculture makes it very obvious who is in charge of the plentifulness of production. And it's not any person or human organization. It's God and God alone. Every time I drive to the building, my route takes me down Hardison. And right now, you might have noticed that there are several, quite a few, huge bells of cotton that have been prepared to be taken off of that property. I have no idea if that is a plentiful harvest or not. But I can say this. It's more than some years. I have no doubt that whoever farms that land works hard. I have no doubt that they are knowledgeable. I have no doubt that they have invested heavily in the right equipment, in the right seed, and in some sort of fertilizing routine to give those plants every opportunity possible to grow. But you don't get a crop if you don't get the right rain at the right time. The rich man would not have had a plentiful harvest had it not been for God. In fact, he wouldn't have had any harvest had it not been for God. His possessions, even his abundance of possessions came from God. And he wasn't wrong to have received them. You know, we've all been entrusted with varying amounts of stuff. In no way is our prosperity related to our behavior or God's love for us. That's a sermon for a different day. But we do have to admit that despite our best attempts at securing wealth, the, the lion's share is out of our control. Everyone listening to this parable would have had a, a keen awareness of what was implied by Jesus' first statement. This man had received some unearned blessings from God. So knowing this, the, the next thing we must wrestle with as we walk through the text is the attitude of the man. If you look back in verse 17 and 18, we see a lot of eyes and mys in the language. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, I, 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 my, my, my. Now, I don't want to be unreasonably harsh on this man. He would have been just as foolish to rest on his laurels and wait for God to build him a storehouse. He would have been just as foolish to harvest what he needed and leave the rest to rot in the field. When we have been blessed, action is required. So the question, what am I going to do with this, is a perfectly acceptable and important question to ask. If we aren't careful, we can over-spiritualize every decision and in the process become irresponsible, slow-acting, maybe even non-acting. So while a lot of the commentators I have read harassed him for using the word I so much, I'm more concerned with the term my. And even with this, even with this particular word, if it weren't for the context of the parable, we wouldn't bat an eye to the language. There are a lot of Old Testament laws regarding the possession of things, specifically land. Um, 
even in the context of Christianity, I think we have to recognize that we possess a level of control over material things while we walk on this earth. So we use words like my to describe money that are in our possession. I think we can do that. And I think that it was valid of this rich man to use the word my. It was descriptive. But here's where he erred. He erred in making a, a total claim over these things. Again, this man wasn't wrong for possessing things. He was, wasn't wrong for taking action over the things under his possession. But he was wrong for making a total claim on these things. He viewed himself as the ultimate determiner of what was going to happen with these things and when it was going to happen. His claim over his stuff was misguided because it was total and ultimate. Just like he wasn't able to claim ultimate responsibility for it showing up, he shouldn't have tried to claim ultimate responsibility for what was going to be done with it. And that brings us to our next major point. Knowing that his claim of ultimate responsibility is futile makes his next claim foolish. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This was a plan he had no power to make. And this is the really scary thing about our stuff. Our claim on stuff makes us think we control our stuff, which makes us take comfort in our stuff. I'm going to say that one more time. Our claim on stuff makes us think we control our stuff, which makes us take comfort in our stuff. You can read this man's internal dialogue in this passage here, and I think we feel what he is feeling. We want this. We desire this. To be able to live with security and comfort and peace is a, is a huge draw for us. How tempting it is to think that things are going to provide this. Let's pause for a second and really connect this point to ourselves. I read this passage and my first thought is towards my bank account. And I definitely relate to this man's feelings with the bank account. When the bank account grows, my sense of security grows. And when the bank account shrinks, my sense of security shrinks. And I would guess you would feel this too. But what about the other stuff I was talking about at the beginning? The feeling of joy and excitement that you get from something like a book or a tool or whatever it is for you that gets you excited, it promotes that exact same attitude. You know, we, we browse Amazon and we justify all the reasons that we need something and we get super excited when it arrives in the mail and we open the box and, and we're just pumped up about it. And one tiny purchase and one tiny gift at a time, we build a, a warehouse of things around us that are going to make our life easier and make our life better and give us comfort and peace. And I'm, I'm afraid we often read parables like this and, and we ask questions about retirement accounts while ignoring the elephant in the room. The stuff around us that makes us feel like we've accomplished something and we're going to be okay. God said this, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, 
whose will they be? You know, when Braxton was little, we would, we would walk out to the parking lot, and almost, well, I'm going to tell you all this, every time I saw him do this, he would point his finger at the car, and when I saw it, that car would beep. It was like, it was like he had some sort of magic power. He could point at the car, and every time, the horn would honk. In fact, some of you parents might see if your kids also have superpowers on the way out from church tonight. There was about a month-long spell where that was a really magical and special thing to do. Um, you know, it can be easy to believe we're in control when the blessings flow. We can be so enamored by them, by the beeping lights and the sounds, and feel such a strong pull toward them that they become all we look at. We just look at the stuff in front of us instead of our Father who's walking beside us. That's really what my sermon's about this evening. I've been watching myself, and I've been noticing that my attention is drawn towards things that aren't lasting. I've caught myself taking credit for things, making things happen that were out of my control. And even worse, I, I catch myself directing my heart towards these things. I wave my hand and the thing beeps and I find it satisfying. Are, are we going to live our life with the illusion that that's how things work? Our problem is not a problem of too much stuff or too little stuff. Our problem is a problem of direction. We see and we hear the flashing lights when we should be looking toward the Father who walks beside us, provides for us, and gives us true treasure. When we direct our stuff towards ourselves, we get the benefit the stuff provides. When we direct ourself toward God, our stuff becomes a secondary concern. In one installment of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, Calvin says, getting is better than having. And he goes on to say, when you get something, it's new and exciting. When you have something, you take it for granted and it's boring. And Hobbes responds, but everything you get turns into something you have. And Calvin replies, that's why you always need to get new things. Oh, how temporary and fading is the benefit from stuff. If we put our faith in our stuff to provide anything lasting, we will be sadly disappointed when our stuff slips from our hands. We have an all-powerful God to direct our hearts toward. And to be rich towards anything other than him is foolish. So again, I'm not anti-Christmas. I'm not anti-gift giving or anti-stuff. But I do see some scary attitudes welling up inside of me this time of year. Attitudes that start tricking me into believing that life is better with an abundance of possessions. Take care, Jesus said, and be on your guard. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Oh, how thankful I am for something more. Tonight, the invitation is open. If you need prayers or encouragement, if the, it is time for a reset in your life, if you've studied and are ready to take the next step, the water of baptism is ready. Any, any need that you might have, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.